Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Some spooky stories in time for Christmas with John Lanchester and his new book, Reality and Other Stories. John Lanchester is the author of The Wall, long listed for the Booker Prize in 2019, as well as four other novels and three works of non-fiction. His books have won the Hawthornden Prize, the Whitbread First Novel Prize, the E.M. Forster Award and the Premier Libretta, and he's a contributing editor to the London Review of Books and a regular contributor to the New Yorker. And John's first short story collection we're going to be talking about today is Reality and Other Stories. John, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe this collection. There isn't a perfect word in English, really. It's it's not exactly ghost stories, not exactly spooky stories or scary stories. There's a very good German word that Freud liked, unheimlich. And Heimlich means sort of homely or familiar or um, sort of safe or recognised. And Unheimlich is sort of something you know and have seen before, but appearing in a form that feels unsettling or alienated or strange. I think that's the um, probably the closest word to it. But no, no publisher's going to let you put a book of Unheimlich tales on the front cover. <laughs> The stories basically are uncanny ghost supernatural stories set around the modern world and specifically ideas of modern technology, mobile phones, the internet, um, social media and various aspects of. Tell me about why you wanted to sort of explore that area through the Unheimlich story. I was about, I reckon I was about halfway through before I realised what the the thread was. The first story um, I wrote actually read out, uh, it's called Signal, and I, I wrote it to, as a sort of entertainment to read when I was staying with friends. And the idea in that was of, um, it's, it's like, you have that feeling when you're at a party or something, or staying with someone, and no one's introduced to everyone, and you don't quite know who anyone is. And, and the kind of, the germ of that was this thing where you don't quite know who anyone is, and one of them turns out not to be actually a person. Mobile phones play a role in that story, but the sort of central thing when I was writing it, I thought was this thing about, you know, how do you know that people are who they you think they are? I wrote another one that was about an academic at a conference, and there I was just very interested in sort of exploring a, a clash between a, a super rational, you know, person who prides himself on 
thinking in terms of fact and reason, you encounter things that you can't quite explain. And again, there's a mobile phone and what I thought was a subsidiary role in that. And then I think the third one, which was um, about a sort of distorted version of a reality TV show. And by that point, um, I think it was actually my wife said to me, you know that these stories are all basically about phones, don't you? I said, of course I know that. Well, actually thinking, oh, yeah. I don't know, you know, um, obviously. And then I realised that there was this sort of theme that had sort of um, snuck up on me. I think the reason for it is that I've I've written a fair bit about, and indeed I've spoken to you about, the external aspects of things like social media and phones and the internet and written about the economics of it and the sociology of it and the impact it has on the world externally. But I think there's a sort of parallel side to it, which is the effect of some of these new technologies on ourselves, on the inside of our head. And when I say ourselves, I mean actually our self, our sense of self, our sense of who we are, of how our minds work. Because I think maybe that's, you know, it's easy to look at something like um, Instagram as an extraordinary thing about connection and how people look at images of each other, how people interact with each other. You know, this extraordinary thing of a company with 13 employees when it was bought for billions and billions of dollars. You know, was, um, you know Kodak had something like 30,000 employees and Instagram was worth more. And that's an interesting story. But I think you, know, you could say that the, perhaps the most consequential and significant thing about Instagram is actually its effect on how people see themselves, how people perceive themselves. It really goes quite deep, you know, this the inward consequences. And I think really that that's what this book ended up being was a way of writing about that sort of other shadow internal side of new technologies, mobile phones, the internet, the side which is hard to put numbers on, but which I think is you know, at least as important as the and possibly more important than the kind of external stuff that it's easier to see clearly. Yeah, and there's more than one of the stories in this collection, a couple of which we're going to talk about in more detail in a bit, very explicitly explore that idea. Um, So over what sort of period of time were these stories written then? How did they come together? Um, First one I uh, I wrote to be read, or so it was New Year's Day 2017, and and then it was over the next couple of years. The thing about this, when I was a teenager, I used to, like, many a teenager before and many a teenager since uh, i used to write amazingly bad poetry and uh, which is luckily all now lost to posterity and my memory of writing amazingly bad poetry was that you sort of didn't sit down to do it it slightly came to you you'd wait the ideas would sort of come slightly unbidden and that's really what happened here I, di- I didn't i didn't really have a plan it's just like i had an idea and then wrote a story then some time would pass and have another idea and so over a kind of couple of years I had, you know, these things sort of kept cropping up. And then the odd thing I discovered, the hard way, is that when you do that, you're not quite clear when you've got a book. You know, you don't know, you don't know when they're going to stop coming. And I, I, I sort of didn't quite know when to sort of declare victory and say, okay, it's a book now. With a novel, you know, perfectly clearly, especially I always have an end in sight when I sit down to write a novel. But with short stories, you know, maybe it's again, it's a bit like a collection of poems. You don't quite know when you're done. So I had eight of them and then I had an, an idea for a ninth and I was sort of sitting, waiting for it to kind of crystallise and turn into a thing. And time went past and a bit more time went past and I still couldn't quite do it. And then I suddenly thought, you know what, I'm quite likely to just sit on my backside here and, you know, a year will go past and, you know, it still won't have crystallised. So why don't I, as it were, plant the flag, declare victory and say, OK, I've got a collection now. So that's what I did. 
So that does sound then like a, a conscious decision to put together a, a book of short stories. So how, how come it's sort of taken this long in your career to do that? You know, it was really, really odd because I've been asked a few times to contribute to anthologies or do a short story for a special occasion and always say the same thing, which is, you know, sorry, never have written a short story and, you know, strongly suspect I never will. And it really, it did come out of this thing of just writing one. Um, and I think the crucial thing was that I didn't write it to publish, I wrote it to read. You know, it was done as a kind of entertainment. And that, I think, is maybe something that's slightly in the DNA of the ghost story, that there's something personal about it. A ghost story is something that you tell someone or someone tells you. There's an implied sense of connection. There's an implied audience. You know, they don't exist in a vacuum. It's sort of, let me tell you a story. There's a frame to it almost, a sort of interpersonal frame. And that was where it began in this, this occasion of, you know, sitting down in front of a room full of people to read it out. And it was very odd. It kind of unlocked it. I wrote this story, someone said, you know, send it off for publication. I thought, yeah, okay, I will. And I did, and then New Yorker published it, which felt like a great kind of thrill, because it was literally the first, literally first short story I've ever written. And that gave me a kind of rush, to be completely frank. And um, that's what carried me through writing the rest of them. And, you know, hand on heart, I don't know if I'll ever write another one. Or on the other hand, if I have, you know, if a bunch of ideas came in the way that these ideas came, sort of one after the other. I would certainly do it again because the next thing I'd say is it's actually in some respects it's more fun than writing a novel because it's not the same risk. You know, with a novel, if it's a year or two's work, you go out on quite a big limb and you end up hating it halfway through always um, and then you have to sort of press on. Um, and with short stories, you, there's less risk. You know, there's less exposure. You get it done more quickly. So you don't quite have that sense of looming existential dread hanging over you for, you know, months and years that you do with a novel. And once you'd, I guess once you'd got through those first two or three stories and realised that there was a, a theme developing, um, that, that this were gonna, these were going to be all sort of spooky stories. There are some very well-known writers of, of, of ghost stories or stories of the supernatural. So were there anybody who was particularly an influence on these? I'd say um, the one about the academic is very much a sort of homage, consciously so, to M.R. Jane, mm. um, who's a writer I absolutely love. Um and also, by the way, an example of a ghost story being addressed to an audience because he used to read them out on Christmas Eve. And he's a fascinating figure, I think. For the, and he, he's very good at the idea of the presentness of the past. And I think because also there was a sort of complicated repressed sexuality at work with him, there's often, often the moment of complete horror in his work is a moment of physical contact, which I think is quite an interesting thing you know, from the point of view of if you were, you know, teaching queer theory. I don't know if they do engage with M.R. James, but I think he's quite an interesting writer from that point of view. So he was very much in my mind when I was, when I was writing them. A writer I absolutely love, presence I think is more a question of tone than anything else, is Shirley Jackson, who's recently been rediscovered, I'm pleased to say. In fact, I think there's a movie coming out about the far from straightforward married life of Shirley Jackson. And um, she wrote this extraordinary short story called The Lottery, which I won't spoil, but anyone who hasn't read it, I, I strongly recommend. And she's very good at a... She's a genius of eeriness and horror, like but she's a genius of tone. She's very good at a, a thing that interests me in this area, these sorts of works, of, of a tone that you can't quite locate. It has a sort of eerie calm about it. And um, I really... Um, reading her had a, had a big impact. And then, you know, I suppose there's also... 
yeah, lots of my childhood reading and young when I was a young man, I read lots of SF, lots of fantasy, lots of horror. Um, I've always liked speculative and alternative types of fiction, and I think I, I find it hard to kind of specifically identify the influences, but I think there's a lot of it in there. What sort of considerations did you have to make about writing ghost stories that were specifically set around modern technology, the modern world? Although I was going to say without some of the uh, the obvious signifiers of the ghost story, but the first one does literally take place in a big house, big country house. But um, yeah, yeah sort and of, the so... second one has a, a, a ruined graveyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I did. I like the idea of. Um, yeah, I suppose it comes back to this thing about unheimlich and making you know familiar and unfamiliar. There's a sort of dance between things that the reader feels it familiar and safe and then you're sort of taking the reader on a journey to unfamiliarity and strangeness and grimness and surprise and there's a sort of i suppose that there's a, a ghost story it has there's a the implied contract is let me tell you a story and that it's going to fulfill the promise of being a bit spooky and it's going to take you somewhere unexpected even though you know in advance that that's what it's going to do. You know, there's a sort of dance of expected, unexpected, familiar, unfamiliar, you know, as we're taking you by the hand and leading you somewhere you're not quite expecting to go. And I thought that the groundedness in the familiarity about everyday reality and the world around us now, I mean, that for most of the stories are very much set here and now, and a realistic setting that then kind of, from where you depart to go somewhere else, I felt that was part of the the balance of it really to this to journey from something you could see looking out the window while you flick through your or you scroll through your feed and taking you to somewhere eerie or weird or unsettling a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Lanchester. We're talking about his latest book, which is Reality and Other Stories. And John, to dive straight into the the first story in the collection, Signal, for a bit, and you've already mentioned that this is a story that features people not necessarily knowing other people or or being able to recognise other people as people. Um, but it also plays to that fear, particularly, again, as I said, this is explicitly set in a big country house, a place that has a terrible mobile signal and no broadband. The story immediately plays to our, our very modern fear of of being cut off from technology, doesn't it? Yes, um, I mean, it's also, and it starts, I think I'm going to read a bit in a moment, with the thing about um, Wi-Fi passwords and things like that. I'm just very amused by that as a point of modern etiquette, you know, that, you know, when you go around to someone's house, everyone's thinking the same thing as, you know, what's your Wi-Fi password and when can I ask for it? And yeah, I, I, it's also, I don't know, I'm interested in the thing about connectedness. You know, there's a kind of horror in our constant connectedness and the fact that it's so hard to get away. You can be on the other side of the world and you're still fully in contact with everyone and in your life, every aspect of your life. I mean, it's miraculous, but it's also awful, really. If you, especially someone my age, you can remember what travel used to be like, you know, and it seems to me that we had an experience of distance. It's actually quite hard to get now. And there's this sort of paradoxical thing that we're more connected and more isolated, that we're permanently joined to each other and we're intensely lonely. And I don't know, I just got interested in that. I don't reach a conclusion about it because I don't think you can. I just think it's a set of themes or topics that are very present in modern life. This thing about, you know, we're we're so much together all the time virtually that actually in lots of respects we're, we're more apart than ever in reality. And I wanted to touch on that in the book. The story Coffin Liquor, which is is the one that you've you've mentioned, is you know explicitly a homage to M.R. James. It's about a, a crotchety old academic um, who I have to admit, as soon as I started reading, I was picturing Richard Dawkins literally until the point where Richard Dawkins explicitly features in the story. Tell us something more about about this particular story. I, as I said, I love that thing in M.R. James. I love that character of the sort of person whose worldview can't account for what's actually happening to them. I think it's a really powerful idea, the idea that someone has a, is completely content with their own account of reality and, and how the world works, and then they'll have things happen to them that don't fit within their worldview, that they actually can't explain or can't process. I think one of the reasons it's a powerful thing is because actually it happens to us. You know, we all have that. You know, you have things where you think you know, you think you know the way the world works, and then you gradually find that you don't. And it's a concentrated version of that. And so, yeah, he's goes to conference. He's he's an economist who has a sort of super. He has the kind of madness that comes from thinking you're completely reasonable all the time. It's a thing I encountered a lot. I got interested in economics when I was writing my book about the credit crunch. I think it was the first time we met when I was in mm-hmm. Latin, 10 years ago. And I was very struck by this quite a common pattern of grotesque intellectual overconfidence that you get among economists. Not all economists, obviously lots of them aren't like that at all, but as a field it is quite prone to it, especially in macroeconomics, which obviously tries to address the big questions about how you know whole economies work and depressions and um, booms and busts and all that. 
the head of which, you know, the American Macroeconomic Society, having famously said in about 2006, that, you know, the central problem of macroeconomics of preventing depressions and recessions has now been solved. Which sort of slightly sums up that thing of crazy overconfidence. And so I had that M.R. James character idea rattling around in my head for a long time. And and really the story is about an economist with that kind of mental equipment who has an encounter in a graveyard um, that basically breaks his view of how the world works. Um, And it happens at a a conference between um, science and humanities and social sciences uh, in an unnamed Eastern European country. And he um, it's about whether, yeah, I suppose, and it also turns on whether these are actual supernatural realities or whether he's actually sort of broken. There's a story called Which of These Would You Like, which, more than any of the other stories in this book, feels like it's set in the same world as your novel The Wall. Um, it's a nightmare. I mean, it came straight out of a nightmare that I had. Uh, and it was a nightmare about being shown essentially being shown preparations for your own execution i woke up from i mean the great thing about nightmares people describe nightmares as bad things which they are they're very unpleasant but the great thing about them is that you wake up and i woke up and i just had this extraordinarily vivid feeling carried over from the dream of being trapped in this horrible process and simply not knowing not understanding why what was happening and really tried to just carry that straight through to the page I'm interested that you say it feels as if it's connected to the wall because in my in my head it's the most purely dreamlike of the stories. And the wall came to me as a dream. It I was going to say an anxiety dream. It's one stage stronger than that. It's a it's a, a properly as a nightmare about this feeling of being caught in a horrible, completely inexplicable process that you just absolutely no idea why you're involved in it, and the logic of it completely. You just can't locate it. You don't know what you've done. You don't know what's happening. You don't know why. Reality, the the title story. And incidentally, we've not discussed either the actual title of the book, which is Reality and Other Stories, which, you know, very literally, there is a story called Reality plus some other stories in this book. But also it, it does cast that idea that reality itself is just a, some sort of imaginary construct. This story very explicitly deals with that that idea that you mentioned in the first part about the sort of internalization of social media and and image it's basically set in a sort of facsimile of the big brother house um some beautiful people appear for what they think is going to be a reality show weirdness happens um very much the idea of the image that we project, the image that we project of ourselves in our head but want to present to other people, the idea that of ourselves that, that we want the world to see. I got interested in, which is a euphemism for, I accidentally watched basically a whole season of Love Island. Um, I think it was in 2017. I sort of, it's one of those things that was on in the background and uh, my wife came and said, oh, why are you watching that crap? And then an hour later, we were still there, just finished, and we watched all season. And... I thought it was a sort of an image of horror, really, and the thing about having this sort of double consciousness of being permanently on show the whole time while having to pretend that you're not, you know, being constantly monitored and watched while acting as if you're completely oblivious of it. And incidentally, I subsequently heard from someone who was a, was a contestant in a reality TV show who said that's exactly it. 
you know, that's exactly what it's like, this thing about your mind doing two completely opposite things at the same time. And I was, as I said, I was struck by a kind of psychological horror of that. And it touched on a, another thing that I've always wanted, always liked the idea of, because um, we associate ghost stories with dark and shadow and candlelight and this time of year. And that's very much in the English tradition of ghost story. But I always like the idea of a ghost story set in absolutely baking sunlight because there's something quite claustrophobic about very bright light. You can't get away, you can't hide. You're, in a sense, you're trapped, you're pinned down by it, I've always felt. And with that, I suppose with quite a few of these, there are kind of two ideas collide in the stories. They're, you know, as sort of, we said, signal is sort of country house and not being sure if someone is who they think they are and about a threat to children they're these sort of collisions and that story of reality is really a collision of those two things about what it's like to be on one of those shows and to have that thing of being constantly thinking about how you look while constantly acting like you're not thinking it clash with this other thing of being trapped in blazing sunlight a ghost story set in incredibly bright inescapable sunlight and that those were the two the two things that sort of mashed together to make that story. To finish us off then, can I get you to, to read us a, a little bit of one of the stories? Sure, thanks Neil. I'm going to read the very opening of the very first one, just a couple of pages of Signal. I tried to give them the children an etiquette lesson while we were waiting at King's Cross on 30th of December. You aren't allowed to ask for the Wi-Fi password before you say hello, I said. That's the main thing. Uncle Mike won't care, said Toby, who was nine. He's nice, said Mia, who was seven. Both of those things are true, I said. Uncle Mike is nice, and he wouldn't care. But this is a life lesson. It's just not what you do. You say hello, you chat for a bit, and then you ask for the Wi-Fi password. It's simply one of the rules. Fear? That's the other guy's problem, Toby said. We'd recently let him stay up too late to watch Trading Places, and this line had made a profound impact. Michael wasn't my oldest friend, and he wasn't my closest friend, but he was older than any of the ones who were closer and closer than any of the ones who were older, and so he had a special status as part of the furniture of my life, the kind of friend who, when you're asked how you met, you have to think for a while to remember. What he certainly was, though, unequivocally, and by a huge margin, was my richest friend. Michael was loaded, seriously and unambiguously loaded. He was the kind of rich that even other people who were rich considered rich. He'd made the money himself. It was all the more impressive because Michael himself seemed barely to have noticed. His peers and friends and rivals and colleagues were all amazed by the fact that Mike was now some kind of gazillionaire, but it didn't seem to make much impression on Michael himself. He drifted through university doing something scientific, engineering or math, I think it was. I'd always thought that, like me, he was going to be an academic, but Michael had got a first-class degree and then stumbled into the city and then shuffled or ambled through an escalating series of jobs in finance before, as he put it, going off to try something different. And it was at that point it became clear that he'd ascended to some new stratosphere of international wealth. The first sign was when he invited us to join him on holiday, which turned out to mean a helicopter pickup, taking us to a private jet, taking us to a yacht the size of a municipal tennis facility, and a week's cruising. And still, 
but it was never clear how Michael had done what he'd done. This was a characteristic that had been apparent from the first time we met at college, his ambient, all-purpose, omnidirectional vagueness. It was a well-meaning vagueness, but it could also be highly annoying, and there were certain situations in which it more or less guaranteed disaster, such as anything involving social life. So I've been talking to John Lanchester. We've been talking about reality and other stories, which is his latest book, a collection of short stories. It's out now in the UK from Faber. John, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thanks very much for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.